It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. It was September 2015 and Brendan Hodder was living in a small town called Boldercombe, which is just outside of Rockhampton in the state of Queensland. He lives with his wife Roxanne and his two children, Matilda and Darcy. Brendan, he was about to embark on a trip of a lifetime. This trip was to celebrate his 40th birthday. He was going to be finding himself riding his motorbike up to Cape York with his brother-in-law in tow. Just before Brendan took off on this trip of a lifetime, he actually developed some flu-like symptoms and it wasn't long into his trip that things began to unravel. So Brendan, 
Tell us about the first day of your trip. I fell off the motorbike on day one up in Cape York. Oh, no. Uh, no. Yeah, on the first day. <laughs> night before I'd spent about $100 at the chemist, I felt no good. Felt like I had influenza. Um, I didn't sleep all that night. Anyway, it was you just soldier on, you know. I've paid yeah. this trip, I'm going. So I fell off, broke my arm, ended up back in Mossman. From Mossman, I had to find my way back to Cairns because I didn't know anyone up there and on the triage list. It's a broken arm. You'll find yourself, sort yourself out. Yeah. So then got yeah. to Cairns. They flew me back. They set my arm. Rocks come up. We flew back to Rocky on the mail run, which is Cairns, Townsend, Mackay, Rocky. And each time the plane took off and landed, my ears were absolutely excruciating, couldn't work out why. Come home, went and seen an orthopaedic surgeon, mm. uh, had a lot of complications through surgery. They said I uh, seemed to leak a lot of blood mm. out of my arm when they were doing surgery. They'd never seen it before. Yeah. I had three surgeries. Anyway, I never had a blood test through any of those times. I was, mm. I was bruising quite bad. Yeah. And then I come home and it got to the stage. A couple of days later, I just said to Roxanne, I can't even walk. I've got no energy. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even make it to the toilet. Um, yeah. Went and seen the GP. Uh, he done a blood test. While we were there, I was must look pretty ill because people said, you can go before me. And, wow. Um, wow. Two hours later, I got a phone call to say that I had to go to the hospital that I had. Um, leukemia which i didn't even wow. know what it was <laughs> so they told you on the phone they didn't wait until you got to the hospital they just said it then and there they said you got to go to the hospital now straight away um 70 70 odd percent of my um blood was uh mm. blast cells which is part of the yeah. leukemia i had yeah yeah Wow, and I bet at that point you kind of had no idea what they were talking about when it came to blast cells and all of that stuff. No idea at all. Couldn't spell leukemia. Yeah. Didn't know what leukemia was. I knew it was a blood cancer. Didn't know there were so many types. Got put in the hospital. People were coming in with masks and bags of platelets, which I'd never heard of, and red blood. And I'm going, oh, okay, what's what's going on? And my family were coming in in masks, and yeah. and I'd never heard the word neutropenic. Yeah. Um, which is what I later found out I was. That's why everyone was wearing masks. I fear of giving me infections. So I spent the night in hospital there. I tried to get on area ambulance that night at midnight, but it got turned back for a storm. So I spent yeah. back to the hospital again and flew out that morning to Brisbane and went to the Wesley. Yeah. yeah. So you landed at the Wesley Hospital. So can you tell us what happened next? Were you there with your family or were you there by yourself? I flew down by Aero Emlets by myself. Yeah, went to the, the ward 4W where they say all the new Lukes go, as they yeah. call it. Roxanne flew down that day, the first flight she could get out that day. So she was down there by lunchtime. But by then I'd already been swindled away for poking and prodding to see what, see what was going on. 
So at that point, I can imagine you would have just been so overwhelmed with everything going on and happening at such a fast pace. Did you feel as though you had been able to grasp exactly what was happening for you at that time? Well, the pace it moved at, I realised it was pretty serious because 11 o'clock I was diagnosed, 12 o'clock I was in hospital. I was trying to get aerial ambulance to take me down that night and I'm like, well, this doesn't normally happen to people. Yeah. Understand. Still very vague. I rocked up down there with a pair of jocks, a pair of shorts and a fishing shirt in a bag. Yeah. That's what I took. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to be down there for seven odd months. Um, Yeah. I'd really, yeah, I didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't probably till after all those tests happened that day and the, Hematologist Dr. Fenning come and see me eleven eleven thirty that night. Wow! And said, and said, "This is this is real. This is mm. this is serious. This is this is not good." <laughs> basically, yeah. yeah. So after that appointment, did everything start to sink in for you? Yeah, it it took a bit of time. Like, mm. I, I suppose, yeah, the first first couple of weeks for me was a bit surreal. It, I, I suppose it didn't really sink in until they got the genetic testing back to say how bad it was for me. Um, it is different for the carers and the people on the outside. I think, yep. you know, one thing I learned about this whole situation is that the mind's very powerful and you tend to hmm. um, concentrate on, in that situation, on the air because it can change. Things can change. Um and, you know, I know behind the scene, Roxanne was fully in action, communicating, talking to, you know, to the nurses and everything and and um, working out where we get support from and how do we get kids and what do we do with, you know, mm-hmm. and the family was all in behind that as well, you know. so Yeah. And would you say that almost because it was moving at such a fast pace of diagnosis, tests, chemotherapy, doctors, nurses, and things like that constantly coming into your room, that that almost helped propel you on to the next hour and the next and the next step of where you need to be? Exactly. I had no time to really absorb it in. I was, you know, they sent you, I had a counsellor and everyone, you know, come Mm. and talk to me that, but she's explained to me that, It'll be two to three weeks before you really hit the wall. And yep. it was pretty much three weeks to the day that everything started to get in a routine, you know, yep. tests and this and the morning tests and the morning, you know, that it, yeah, I, I, I had a, my meltdown about three weeks in. Um, I know Roxanne had them a lot earlier. Um, yep. But, you know, like I said, when, you're in that, when I'm in that situation, I just, well, I couldn't believe I was there, really, you know, because I felt really fine beforehand. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, I think because you're protected from the outside world, that I don't know. You, I, I, I didn't feel isolated. I just felt I was in my own little. My room was my bubble, yep. and I don't know. I, I sort of like left all the other running around for. Um, poor old Roxanne yeah and you and did you kind of feel like you know you said you had that breaking point around the third week and was there something you know that pulled you back out or helped change your mind and and kind of reset and refocus yourself 
through that time. Yeah, what I suppose I found out that I needed a transplant, um, that yep. it wasn't going to be resolved by, um, you know, chemotherapy or anything. And when they got the genetic testing back, they said, yeah, no, winner, winner, chicken dinner, you've got the worst one, you've got flip three. Mm. Um, yep. We get one, one case every 30 days or something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't win the lotto, but I can win this. Um, win this. You can win that. Yeah. yeah. Not the one you want to win. No. So that's probably the reason I had a meltdown. But, you know, yeah. you know I'm, I'm pretty accepting. I go with the flow. Um, mm. I just put my arm out and, you know, like I said, I didn't know what leukemia was. So I couldn't make any decisions. That I was in the hands of the hematologist and he said, stand on one foot with you, you know, whatever. I'd just done it. Um, you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a fork in the road and, you either give it a go and survive or um, mm-hmm. you know where you're going to end up if you don't give it a crack. Yeah, so it sounds like almost that was your surrendering point. You just went, okay, I've got to surrender it. I've I've been dealt this card and, you know, whether, you, as they said to you, Brendan, you're going to need a transplant. You, you kind of, as you've said, you've just went, whatever I have to do. Your mindset changed. You just went, we've got to do this. There's it's, no other um, option. Yeah, and I, you know, it's just that, that's that's it. That's it's not going to change. It's not going to go away. Um, yeah, got to re- we've got to rely on all the research and and um, stuff that, unfortunately, people that haven't made it before you have have gone through and they learn stuff. The chemotherapy I had was nowhere near as bad as someone had five years ago. You know, yeah. so um, I suppose on the on the list, we're all guinea pigs. We all don't yep. react the same. Um, yeah, and also I had a girl uh, next in the room next to me who was diagnosed the same day with acute myeloid leukemia as well, but hers was a gene- different genetic strain. So we we started what we call the journey um, yep. together. So yeah, we had people each other to bounce questions off. I suppose it sounds like by you having that person there with you on the journey really helped soften that blow for you and made you realize. That you're not in this alone. Yeah, exactly. And she, she, she was, uh, she was only young. Um, yeah. And had a young family. You know, I, if I got an infection, I'd say to her, or I got a rash or something, I'd say to her, "Did you get a rash like this?" Because she'd go, "No, but I got this." So, you know, it yeah. just proved to me that we're all, even though everyone's getting the same treatment at the start, how everybody's everybody's individual body reacts is totally yeah. different. Did that help you learn also not to compare, you know, just because cause I think sometimes people can, it's a very common question that we get asked is what's going to happen to me and my response is always that I can list a thousand things that potentially may happen but that doesn't mean that it's going to happen to everyone because everybody is so individual, aren't they, and everyone reacts differently. And, oh, and totally. uh, yeah. she had She had lots of troubles with the pick line and stuff. I, I had the same pick line for the whole seven, eight weeks I was in the Wesley, but I had a reaction to one of the chemos where the, the hematologist had never seen a rash so fiery, oh. red and intense in their yeah. life. You know, they were just saying this is, we've seen it, but nothing just bad. And, and yeah. you know, and that was my reaction. So you had the first round of chemo and then you relapsed, is that right? I relapsed after the first yeah. round of chemo and they said yeah. it would have never worked due to the genetic type yeah. I had. Um, yeah. So they hit me with something 
a little bit better in the next round, which mm-hmm. put me in remission. By then, they were searching my family for a donor. Yeah. And how and how was that search? Was that a successful search or? Uh, a f- search for my family was not successful. None of my – I got four sisters, elder sisters, and none of them are a match to me. Right. Yeah. And then so it then would have had to go on to the um, – I imagine the doctors would have said you, you would need to go on to the bone marrow registry. Is that what happened? I'd, I'd start searching, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. It's sort of like the peaks and troughs. I, I was pretty excited that I had four sisters because they say, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. one in each person, you know, out of yep. four, I, I, the potential's there that I could get one. But as soon as that come back as no, it, it, that was a big kick in the butt. It's like, okay, that's um, clause one done. So now yep. we've got to search the world and find someone to match me. Yeah, and I and that and I think for many people, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know that when they do hear that a sibling isn't a match, it almost, as you've said, it is a kick in the guts, and it's, it's a oh no, is this going to work? It's you know, it's something that makes everything falter, and you you question, am I going to have a match in the world somewhere, and what's that going to look like for me? Yeah, you soon uh, soon realise that you're a little a little fish in the fishbowl. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, and you're relying on other people that you don't know, you know, that you've never met before, and you're relying on them to to donate bone marrow to save yeah. your life. Yeah, and then, like you know, then I suppose around that time, that's when Marianne come in for me yeah. and gave me a foundation. Yeah, and um, she was my strong point. She pulled my head in. And said yep. to me, "What did she need to pull your head in about?" <laughs> just, just the fear of not having a match, you know. Um, yeah, I suppose not understanding what a bone marrow register was and what the chances are, and you know, and I, it, it's it's not the hematologist's fault. They always tell you the doom and gloom, which they have to. But mm-hmm. Marianne started giving some and the Leukemia Foundation positive stories of people do yeah. make it through this. Um, yeah. I've seen this personally myself. You know, um, at that stage, I I hadn't really seen my kids. I ain't seen them once yeah. or twice because. In what period, time period was that? That would have been in the, like the six, five, five weeks. I think I've seen them twice. Wow. Yeah, just just the distance from home, um, trying to support you not working, trying to support accommodation, which is not cheap for a family. Um, and that's when. You know, Roxanne was very hesitant to move, but when Marianne took her over there and explained everything to her, and that it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah, so took her over to one of our villages, and so was that almost for you and your family a turning point to go, okay, we've got one thing a roof over our head that you know is free of charge, and we've got this massive journey of a bone marrow transplant ahead. Yep. But um, you've got a village support around you and people you can tap into. Yeah, and it was right when I was come not long before I came out of the Wesley, so that yep. gave us a base. The kids had finished school by then because it was coming near the end of school holidays, you know. Yep. So they were back with us. It, it, it actually gave us a home from home, <laughs> yep. you know. And there's other people in the village. There's people downstairs we could talk to. There's exercise facility. You know, it's just 
we made a lot of good friends there. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, it kind of resonates in what you're saying is that it's that connection. You're connecting with others that are in a similar situation to yourself and that are because it's a very unique situation and not everybody um, in this world experiences it and understands what it's like to be diagnosed with a blood cancer and what it does to your life and how it turns it upside down in a phone call like you well, experienced. It, it stops there. <laughs> yep. It doesn't go on any further. Your, your new path in life is survival and mm -hmm. becomes, um, you know, a, a totally opposite hand journey that you're planning on doing yesterday. Yep. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, as I've always said to people, it's always, I reckon, my opinion is harder for the carer than it is for the for the patient like myself because I just managed myself in hospital with yep. the nurses and stuff, but the care is still trying to run. The world doesn't stop. The bills keep coming. Schools, you know, that, that, the outside world still runs. So having other people where Roxanne could talk to and with people that partners and family members that were going similar thing, Mm. Is reassuring, you know. It's it's the same thing I was doing to to Tracy next to me was that we could bounce our issues off. Roxanne yep. could bounce her problems and issues off with people at the Leukemia Foundation or the people staying at the village. Yeah. So you both had your own network of support separate from each other to help to kind of help manage what was going on for each of you because it's such as you said it's such a different perspective isn't it you know it's their different roles as to where you're sitting so it's important to connect with others in similar roles that get it totally totally because you know as they due to being neutropenic not being able to uh, mingle with the outside world because of fear of infection having no yeah. white blood cells and that um i i didn't go anywhere you know yeah I come out of the Wesley. You were isolated. Yeah, exactly. I lived in a room. That's basically mm -hmm. it. So um, you you said you've had to have transplant. You had an unrelated match. Where Do you know whereabouts in the world that match was found? Was that in Australia or somewhere yes, else in the world? it was Australia. Um, what I know was he was 22, quite a large fella, mm -hmm. and um, – I always just think for someone that was 22 to be on the bone marrow list, I'd never heard of it. Uh, obviously, it had an involvement in it or some knowledge of leukemia um, because, yeah, not many people knew about it. Or not, you know, I didn't know about it either. Yeah, it's definitely um, an unknown thing and it's, you know, it is quite, non-invasive for the person that needs to donate and it's something that as you experience can save your life you know well i'm still vertical so that's a good thing <laughs> vertical that you are i'm talking to you so yeah you're still, you're still around so with um it being non-related did you have to then change hospitals or was the wesley able to keep you at the hospital no i had to be changed to the royal um, Royal Brisbane Hospital because of the non-related transplant. Yeah, that's where I had to do a bit more time. 
And how is letting go of that safety net? Because you can build such a relationship with, you know, a hospital. You you experience your peaks and your troughs there, and then having to go, okay, I'm getting my putting my life into the hands of a whole new team, doctor, the works. How was that? Um, when they said I could leave, like probably the week before I was leaving the Wesley, they say, oh, you can go out today for an hour, tomorrow for two hours. I said, uh, no, stick that up your jumper. There's unbathed people out there. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. This is safe. This is my safe little room. I've been here for, for seven weeks now. Why, why would I want to upset the apple cart? Um, it was very daunting. I hadn't been outside that whole time. Wow. Um, wow. I, I, I went out to one little, little rooftop terrace, which mm-hmm. we weren't meant to be into, but I got one of the nurses let me out there just so I could feel the sun again. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the nurses had to come in and really, really persuade me to go. I was like, yeah. no, nah, 4W's my home. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was very hard to leave, very, very hard to leave. And what do you think, I mean, besides the nurses almost um, giving you that nice little push, was that almost just again, like you did at the beginning, surrendering, going, okay, next step? Did you almost? Well, they kicked me out. <laughs> they made me go. <laughs> he didn't leave, went kicking, yeah, kicking they, and screaming. Yeah, they said, you got to go. you got to go. You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, so we went to the village. And mm. that's that's where we hung around. Um, due to my genetic type, they fast-tracked my transplant because they knew it would come back within six weeks or six months due to recent research. They were heading for a Christmas Eve transplant. And so how did you feel once you got out and you made that jump of walking out the door and then heading into the village? How did you cope with with that? I was all right once I was in our room, apartment. Yeah. I didn't mingle much with people. Rocks tried to coach me out and I slowly come out of my cave. And was that just a fear of catching something or ever, and seeing everybody as a risk or? Yeah, but then you do realise there everyone's through the same, everyone's got the same issue. Everyone's being as cautious as each other hand hygiene, coughs, sneezes, like everyone in that village is all on the same alert. So it, it, yeah. it became a comfort ground. After a while, I didn't bother and worry about the fears of mingling. I just mingled because there's young children there, you know, so. Yeah. And you, did you feel that that helped, you know, helped your mental health, connecting with others and, and mingling and taking those baby steps? Oh, definitely. I felt human again. I was actually felt like I was socialising again, you know. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Not just a patient. That's right. Not just room, you know, room seven. Mm-hmm. Brendan Hodder with AML yep. diagnosed on. Mm-hmm. 135063, you know. You still what, remember it. <laughs> you come a number. You say it yep. enough, I you. So. Yeah, yeah. And then so let's go let's go up to the the day of transplant I guess and so as you said that was at the Royal Brisbane Hospital with a new team with a with a um with a new treatment path um so how was day day minus 1 for you um nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. 
I felt really good. I didn't feel like I, you know, my blood counts were staying pretty normal. I was feeling better in myself. I was like, what, why do I have to go through all this again? But obviously, you know, research shows that it comes back that type. So I had um, the haematologist, Dr. Darrant, and the behind the scenes, him and my other Dr. Fenning were, you could sense they be talking behind the scenes for the best process. They they knew everything. And, he, you know, they just – I had no no fear of communication wasn't being done behind the scenes or anything. I knew the round table had been the best mm-hmm. avenue for you was being done. Yeah. Yeah, so he rocked up day minus one and, oh, I had a Hickman's put in my chest to feed all the good stuff in. Lunchtime, they gave me – my first round of heavy chemo and probably within 15 minutes I still remember saying to Roxanne, I feel like I'm drunk but I know it's not going to be a good party because <laughs> it, just, it just made me dizzy, you know. So, yeah. And then it, uh, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It wasn't a fun little journey but um, yeah. it's, it's what I had to do. Yeah. And what, you know, as you said, it wasn't fun. It, it, it's not easy it's um but you I guess you know that's um, that's your option you know and was there anything that you mentally kind of had to almost say as a mantra to yourself or things that you found yourself to help you get through those really tough days or tough hours even um not really we I just run on that motto yeah it's it's owned by Nike but I just just say people just do it like yeah. Doctor said it needs to be done. Do it, you know. So I used to go down twice a day and get radiated for three days. As I say, they cooked me like a chicken for eight minutes either side. I turned out, I turned out pink, but you know, you just make the most of it. Have a laugh, with the nurses. Be polite, as Roxanne says. I was always polite to the nurses, but I probably took my um, crankiness and that out on my family. That you know, Roxanne and my mum and that they were in visiting me because. I oh, know, you've got to let it go somewhere. And unfortunately, it's the care that cops it. Yeah, it is, yeah. And I think, you know, as you say, just just do it. You know, it's a, it's very easier said than done, isn't it, you know, um, at some times when you're having those bad days or bad hours, but it's it's that mantra to help you put your one foot in front of the other because oh. that's something you have control over, isn't it? And take the positives of the day. You know, you may not think there's positive, but, you know, being able to go to the toilet by yourself and not have to get it measured in a bottle, I used to claim that as a victory. You know, I'd say today yeah. is a different day than yesterday. They're not, me- not measuring my input and output, you know. So yeah. something's changed. I'm, I'm going good, yeah. you know. And yeah, so. and by that, it's almost gaining yourself back as well because you, you do almost have to give yourself over to the treating team to – to go, okay, what the doctor says, that's what we're going to do. But every time you get to peel back a layer, peel back not measuring not measuring your yeah. input-output, it's yeah. you're gaining a sense of yourself back again, piece of you. Yeah, it, it, it makes you feel like you're coming slowly back to uh, normal, normal yeah. daily routine. Yeah, because how long did you stay in hospital for post-transplant? How many days were you in hospital for? Um, I was, I missed the record by a day. I had, um, 
it was a Sunday. They wouldn't let me out, but 16 days. Wow. I got out after transplant. Yeah. That's incredible. But, yeah. I um, I had a pretty good run, even though I had mucositis and everything like that. I was, you know, on all everything. But I um, the key to me was Roxanne getting me up and making me walk, even though I didn't feel like walking. I hated it. I complained about it. But she'd make me just do a little lap around the ward once, twice a day, just keep moving. I was VRD, so I wasn't allowed in the family room, so the kids couldn't come visit me. So the whole time I was in the 16 days in transplant, I never seen anyone but my mum and yeah. my wife. Christmas Day, day after transplant, I walked outside to see the kids because they weren't allowed into the ward, which was pretty hard. But, you know, what do you do? It's just, yeah. it's just how it was. That would have been incredibly difficult, you know, and also to see them and not be able to spend that time but then to, did you re- almost reflect and go, that's why I'm doing it. That's, oh, totally. that's my reason. You know, and thanks to technology, FaceTime. You know, I used to FaceTime yeah. kids at night before bed or if they wanted to talk to me. You know, that's where technology is really helpful. So as you said, you know, almost was the key to some of your successes being able to get out so early is um, moving. Moving. Um, yeah. I was lucky. I went on a trial for nasal gastric feeding and so I didn't eat for th- I didn't eat for 13 days at all, not that I felt like drinking or eating anything. With mucositis? Yeah, it wasn't the greatest thing to have, mm-hmm. but... Um, I believe now that's pretty much coming in as routine now, nasal gastric feeding because of the yeah. response everyone had from it to keep your gut bacteria going. Uh, so, yeah, I was offered a trial. I was offered a few, but that's the one I chose to do. And, you know, it's like as you said, you said at the beginning that, you know, it's people like yourself that have gone before or have been diagnosed before being a part of those trials and paving the way for research and, different techniques of to how to treat blood cancer is um a really important part if you can oh, sign totally. up. Exactly. You know, and you've got to be comfortable mm-hmm. with what you sign up sign up with. People before you've done it. Like I say, we're all guinea pigs, we're all we're all we're all an mm-hmm. experiment, but what works for the uh, majority hopefully will help the majority. And so you came out of hospital, were you as apprehensive as you were when you came out of the Wesley the first time or were you eager to get out this time? No, I was pretty keen to get out. Just, I mean, I, I got readmitted once but only mm-hmm. for overnight. Just that was due to dehydration because obviously I didn't feel like drinking and eating but when you're in hospital you're on a drip. When I got home, I just, we just, yeah, I just didn't do it, so I faded away a bit there. But so no. you almost had to learn to care for yourself because you do. You have all the nurses and things like that, and things that you didn't realise that were being productive. You go, oh, I do need to keep up my water intake, and it's not being fed by a bag and things yeah. like that. And mm. if you're not, you know, if you're not feeling particularly well, you know, you just you just tend to go, oh, I can be stuffed. Going to get a drink of water and just going to lay here. And then that, yeah. the, the whole day's gone and you've drunk nothing and tomorrow's a bad day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's almost like you have to 
you have to help yourself to then help pr- propel yourself forward for the next day and, and basically set yourself up for success. You definitely got to manage yourself. Yeah. You got to self-manage. Even in hospital, self-manage and not ask the nurses. What's going on here? What are you putting in here? Oh, yeah. I don't usually have this. What's this one? You know, so you got to you got to take a bit of interest. Well, put it this way, you got nothing else to do. So you might yeah. you might take your interest to them, what yeah. they're doing and, and what's yep. happening. You know, and learn a bit, learn and but, take the responsibility of your own care and yep. your own health. Exactly. So, and how was your time out of host, like a post transplant? You said that you know you, you at the beginning you learnt how you have to self manage and you have to be aware of you you know hydrating yourself and and whatnot. Did you have did you keep up that pattern of walking every day and um, moving yourself forward, or did you hit a slump yeah. at any point? Oh, took the good days with the bads. Um, I didn't. You know, we just slowly. From memory, I think we used to go Tuesdays and Fridays back to the Royal for checkups twice a week. And so you'd pay for it Wednesday and Saturday because they were big days waiting in the waiting room, you know, just walking around, getting back to the village. It, it I did feel like I was 100 years old there for a while. Mm-hmm. Once you started getting better and better, I used to walk. Well, we stayed at Dutton Park, so I used to walk up mm-hmm. to Bogger Road Jail, round it and back down and slowly just, yeah, just did a little bit more here and there. And But I didn't do any of that till after the 100 days, you know, post-transplant. But I was still walking downstairs and mingling with people and, you know, we had little barbecues and that as groups and stuff downstairs and, Stuff like that. Did you feel that your strength really picked up post those hundred days? Is that? Yeah, yeah. I uh, the Leukemia Foundation's informed me about a, a exercise program that was going on, so I joined it. And then yeah. wasn't long after that, I got told I could go home. Mm-hmm. But we continued that on in Rocky. It was fantastic. Because did you feel you got out of hospital and you almost are like, oh, I did it, I did the transplant, I've got there, and that you, you know, you do it as you say, it's not an easy process, and it's and it is one that takes a lot out of you. Did you feel that you almost needed just to surrender to that, let your body heal, rest when you needed to, instead of trying to worry about going for that walk? Yeah, I just, and you soon start to realise. Your body will tell you. So some mornings I'd wake up and say, yep, today's just a TV day, yeah. you know. Um, other yeah. days I'd say, okay, I'll come downstairs with the kids and watch them play on the playground or, you know, I'd force myself to take the stairs, yeah. not, the, not, not the lift where we were, just to get that little bit extra. And then other days yeah. I'd go, today's not going to be that day. Yeah. So it sounds like it was just in that transplant 100 days, it's it's a big mental game that you kind of need to surrender to yourself and go, okay, I don't, today's not that day. But then you also on other days you do need to to motivate yourself to set that little goal to go, I'm going to walk to the letterbox or yeah. I'm going to. Yeah, you definitely. Your brain's your strongest, but it's also your worst enemy. Yeah. Um, yep. you know, it, 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 it'll out of a conversation with the doctor, I noticed, and Rox and I always took 
it was the way the power of us when any doctors were talking for the fact that you'd walk outside, you'd only taken in 20% of it, and then you lay there at night saying, oh, I'm pretty sure he said it's no good. But mm. in reality, he didn't say that. It's your mind playing yeah. tricks. Yeah. So having Roxanne in the consultation, we could bounce that off each other too and say, no, no, he said that. And you go, oh, that's all right, you know. So yeah, yeah your, mind, your mind's your strongest tool but it all can also can be your worst enemy <laughs> yeah and do you think that the way to keep your mind strong is to doing those things that are positive reinforcements you know oh, totally. such as exercise meditation or mindfulness or whatever you know maybe your flavor but um you've got to exercise it as well don't you yeah and i come from a tray background my i was always making stuff and brain doing a million miles an hour but uh, somehow i was just able to switch off and just look after number one, which was me at that stage, mm-hmm. and try to control, you know, the brain when it started wandering, you just talk to people. Yeah. Yep. So how how long after transplant, how many days or how long after transplant did you have to stay in Brisbane for? Oh, I can't remember. It was a fair time after because I had a few issues with, bit of GVHD, graft-versus-host disease from the donor, playing silly buggers with my organs and stuff. Um, but it was, it was, it was a, I can't remember the exact, Roxanne will know that one. Yeah, and that'll be her question, yeah. Yeah, so, days, days turned into months, turned into yeah. a long time. Yeah, <laughs> all just merged into one. Yep. So when you got that news of, okay, Brendan, you can go home, how how was that for you? Um, exciting but daunting because we're going back to a, you know, like a, a regional area that doesn't have the royal and the haematologists and the Leukemia Foundation and stuff like that. Like very keen to get back to home where, you know, there's nothing like home. But... The support network's not there. Um, the haematologists aren't there. Um, yeah, it, it is a scary step because you lose that big base, I suppose, of data. Your safety net, your safety blanket, it you is. know. Yeah. So you got to return home. So you returned home and you did do that step. You, you peeled the Band-Aid off and you went home. How how was the return to home? Was it surreal going back to a place that you left in a helicopter at 11 a.m. one night and and landed in Brisbane? Was it surreal being back there? Yes. I, some stages there I didn't think I was ever going to get back, but... It hadn't changed. It was the same home, sweet home. Um, I suppose the, it was just it was the fear was it's our control now, not yep. the doctors and nurses controlling it. It's us, you know. So I suppose that's where it comes back to a bit of self-managing in hospital and understanding what's going on because mm-hmm. you're in charge when you get home. And so did you find that transition from being in, you know, being a, a patient that was in hospital being checked up, um, you know, a couple of times a week to then being a person that was on monthly visits or fortnightly visits? Did you find that transition easy or did you um, find your routine and your rhythm quite quickly? 
it was it was okay. It was dawning. Like if I'd, something would happen to me home, we'd we'd have to find out straight away why it was happening and and stuff. Because mm-hmm. um, you always panic, and nervous. But once we got in the routine of where well, we'd get a flight to Brisbane and back, and um, I actually got a t-shirt made up that said because I always wear a mask on the plane, and you'd have mm-hmm. to. Now, now masks are trendy. wasn't trendy back then. Um, people would look at me and like I was carrying something on the plane. You know, why is he wearing a mask? So I got a shirt made up. Um, I'm not contagious, but you may be. And I used to wear that <laughs> yeah. on the planes and say, well, yeah. it's you coughing and sneezing. That's detrimental to me, mate. So, yeah. you know, look the other way. Yeah. We should get a few of those. I think that's a slogan in there. Yeah. <laughs> slogan in there. Yeah, a yep. fundraising scheme if anyone's yeah. listening. I definitely think, yeah, yeah. Which is so true, isn't it, you know, that it's everybody else becomes a threat to you and it's um it's not how you've lived your life before and all of a sudden you you become, I guess, you have to protect yourself, so you become close. You have to close yourself off to maybe the person that you were before, where you could have sat next to the person on the plane and had a yarn and had a chat and connected. But now you're like, oh, don't want you to open your mouth and start breathing and coughing, <laughs> coughing yeah. on me, so I won't talk to you. So it's it's a change of how you see people in the community. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm a pretty timid person in public. You know, Roxanne does all the talking. I'm I explained as Bunnings. Sausages, I'm at the back flipping the sausages. She's doing all the serving out the front. That's her forte, the talking. I'm just the sausage turner. So it, yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, to wear a mask on the plane, I felt uncomfortable because, you know, everyone's looking at me wearing a mask. But I just thought, uh, I don't know any of these people. I don't care. This is about me. This is about protecting yeah. me. I haven't gone through all this rubbish to come down to an infection. So, I'm wearing it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And that's right. It is about you. And then I guess that the next part of the journey is about rebuilding your life post a diagnosis, isn't it? You know, you've done all of that. As you said, you did the hard yards, you went through, you had treatments, you've had uh, transplants and everything like that. So with all of that in mind, what was, I guess, did you have your return to work or were you able to, to work or? kind of settle back into normal um i suppose the big thing is learning to retrust your body because you know what it cheated on me it failed yeah um uh, trusting your body was a big one for me like if i got a bruise on my ankle why have i got a bruise is it because it's back or is it because i kicked my foot on the chair last night you know and that's how i used to i'd say okay i've got a bruise on my leg mm. i kicked the chair last yep. night that's why i've got a bruise not because leukemia because I kicked the chair. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the little things that the brain plays tricks tricks on yeah. me. But yeah. I, I was quite it's- lucky. I had a, I had a, like a work income protection insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was – I work was really good for me. Um, they kept me employed. Well, they kept my position and they said, you know, don't rush back. You need to do what's best for you. So I spent the re- the remaining time at home till um, like 2017. Yeah, I started 
talking about going back to work. And in that stage there, I'd done a lot of exercise. I'd, we exercise physiologists. Um, they done tests on me and I had a falls risk of 80-plus-year-old due to, yeah. I know, I had bad vertigo, just don't know why, but maybe just from laying mm. around. I used to carry a weight of around 85 kilos. I got down to 59 kilos. Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty weak, you know. I was, mm-hmm. I was, so doing the exercise, they talking to the the um, business in Brisbane, Fit to Thrive was the campaign. Yeah. 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 And our mob in Rockies communicated with them and they told them all, all about it. So they... Mm-hmm were really good to me and and, pres- and really worked uniquely yeah. on me to give me a program where I could go twice a week and just ramp up. And by the end of it, I was, yeah, I was fitter then than yeah. I am now. <laughs> yeah, well, so it sounds like in the, in the time coming home, you really had to spend a lot of time rebuilding, rebuilding your body and also then keeping your mental health and your mind in check because, as you said, it was in rebuilding that trust in your body that was lost. Is that, is yeah. that fair to say that that's what the next half of that journey was about? Yeah, and, you know, to this day now I still have little moments, you know, why mm. if – if I've got a pain somewhere or, you know, you think, oh, no, but then you go, no, it's okay. You're allowed to have bruises. You're allowed to feel pain. You you know, it's... it's you bring yourself back to the facts. Don't, the facts. don't almost... Yeah, don't hook into the back. emotion. Yeah, you hook in, don't hook into the emotion. You hook into the facts and you the break facts, it. Yep. The facts are... You know, you watch the hematologists, they don't make a decision without the facts, without the true data. Um, yeah. No decisions made without that. I remember the hematologist telling me, I can't comment on that. I haven't got the results back. So they wouldn't yeah. surmise. They work on the facts. And yeah. That's what you got to do. you just got to work with the facts. The fact is, is that I kicked yeah. my toe, I've got a bruise, that's why I've got a bruise. Yeah, yeah. And over the time, does that help you rebuild your trust within your body and having those test results being proven to you that you know you haven't relapsed and your body's responded well to treatment that i imagine would help your trust be rebuilt yeah totally mm. um yeah you know i i um i don't really worry about any of that anymore now yeah because how many years are we coming up to would we be up almost five up to f- five years christmas eve december 24th was transplant day so Five years in September since diagnosis. So, Brendan, as we come to the end of this episode and if you sharing your story, you know, I'm wondering after everything that you have been through and experienced, would you like to give the listeners some golden nuggets or some key messages that you feel may be helpful to impart on somebody who may find themselves in a similar situation or even some advice perhaps for the carer? Yeah, well, I'm always a person that likes doing everything, everything themselves, but accept what's offered. If people want to help, accept it. They want to, they want to offer it if they didn't want to do it. Um, I always, always like doing stuff myself. No, no, don't get them to do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. But 
you know what, whatever makes your journey, you're in a tough predicament, whatever makes your journey better, accept it. And, you know, that was their decision to offer. So, yeah, take it. If it's going to make your life easier, take it. Um, for the poor old carer, I, <laughs> I don't think I could have. I can't think what Roxanne went through, you know, um, running normal day-to-day life as well as, you know, um, the issues I was having. So, you know, I wasn't nice to my carers, but be nice to your carers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, be kind. <laughs> be kind. Be kind. Yeah. And, you know, and and listen, you know, I had a lad walk into my room on Christmas Eve. He had a transplant in the same bed that year before and he told me, here I am. Here I am 12 months on, mate. Look at me. Oh, wow. You know? And I was like, yeah. well, I'm going to be that man. You know, I'm going to be yeah. I'm going to be that bloke that walked in my room on Christmas Eve, even though I didn't want him to walk in there because I didn't know who he was. But yeah. um, don't narrow in on the doom and gloom. Everyone's different, but I never read anything about my diagnosis because me personally, I couldn't. I can't change it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hematologist. There's no miracle cure out there. I I just left it in the hands of the of the of the specialist. But you know, as we spoke before, I, I managed I managed myself as well and tried to understand the journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. You didn't jump ahead. You learnt on the go almost, and you learnt what you needed there's at no, that time. There's no preempting it because. What happened to Tom won't happen to Charlie. Yeah. So why why worry yourself from the book says because it's not going to go as the book said. It's going to go yeah. as as your journey decides. Yeah. But you know that may not be for everyone. That was my I thought mm-hmm. well, that's, that's why why read about it. I've got it. I can't change it. I'll leave it in the hands of the experts. Yeah. Anything else? It. As I say to people, is what it is. I, I never asked why. One of the nurses early on said to me, you know, I think one night there I was sitting there and I said, why? Why did I get it? Why? Mm. And she said, mate, that's one question you have to stop asking yourself. She said, if we knew why, we cure it. You don't know why. You're never going to get an answer. So, so you need to let that go. And I did. I said, okay, well... I'll just let it go. Like, why ask? You're not getting an answer for it. It's that different. It's the same word acceptance, but in a different, in a different, um, in a different light, isn't it? You know, you have to accept that that this is the card, and there, as you've said, the why we don't know it, but this is we're here, yeah. and um, we need to move forward. Yeah, and I'm pretty stubborn too. I think that helped. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's my theory. Yep. Yeah. Pretty good one, I'd yep. say. Yep. Well, Brennan, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on here today and sharing your story. It's it's not an easy one to share, you know. It's um it can be daunting and it can bring up a lot of memories and emotions that you 
sometimes people have wanted to leave in the past, but, you know, I really, um, and from the foundation, we thank you for being so brave and, and coming on and your story, I have no doubt is going to help shed some insight, lessen anxiety for people out there that are newly diagnosed or going through a similar experience. So thank you. Yeah, it's all good. You know, if one person gets relaxed by it and, and you know they find something out of it well that's a that's that's a win and that brings us to the end of this episode today with brendan hodder firstly i would like to thank brendan for his time and for him being so open and honest when sharing his story i hope that you the listeners were able to take away some of the key messaging that brendan shared throughout this episode I really valued his time and having a conversation with him. I know that many of you will be nodding along with some of the things and messaging that he shared. So please, if you would like to know any more about today's episode or you would like to know more about our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.